Thanks, Enoch. Um, but if I haven't met you yet, I'm Erin. I look forward to meeting you. And I get the privilege tonight of wrapping up our series, What on Earth Are You Here For? So Eric does such an amazing job speaking. He's kind of a hard act to follow, I'll be honest. So just to recap what Eric said the last two weeks. So the first week he talked about the great mandate found in Genesis 1. And he shared that God created us in his likeness to reveal his greatness. And then last week, he shared about the great commandment. And the two questions he left us with are, am I obeying God and am I loving other people? And so tonight, I'm wrapping up the series talking about the great commission. So last words are weighty, right? We tend to remember them. I assume that if someone knows that they're about to die and they're you know, knowing in, in right mental state, right, and they know they're about to die, that they speak deliberately, right? Knowing that these last words that are spoken are likely to be remembered by those who are gathered around them. And as people realize that their time on earth is ending, they have a desire to leave this legacy to the people gathered who are likely significant to the one who is dying. And so in those final breaths, communicating to their loved ones what is closest to their heart. And tonight, we're going to spend some time looking at the last command that Jesus gave his followers before he ascended into heaven. What was it that was closest to his heart? That's what we're going to look at tonight. So this command is commonly referred to as the Great Commission. And while the most famous passage of the Great Commission is found in Matthew 28, there's actually these words of Jesus are found in every single gospel and in the first chapter of Acts. So it's not hard to find. It's there. It's not hidden in the depths. Um, but we're going to spend some time just unpacking what this looks like to live out in our day-to-day -day life. So after intentionally spending his time with these 11 men, this is what Jesus told them. Now go and do the same to other people that I've done with you. So this strategy of Jesus to reach the world with the news of who he was and what he came to do was this, to make disciples. So let's read Matthew 28, 18 through 20 together. That's what he says. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So we're just going to take this passage apart bit by bit. And the first thing we're going to look at is how Jesus started all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus' authority, right? So when we look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, we see that he has divine authority, and it's revealed by his teaching, the miracles that he performed, demonstrating power over disease and nature and death, the authority to forgive sins, right? That claim, all authority on heaven in heaven and on earth has been given to me, is a claim that only Jesus could make. No human in their right mind could make such a claim. And from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see that crowds recognize his authority. We see this in Mark 1, 21 through 22. This is what it says. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went to the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So this same question that they were asking then, like, who is this guy? Like, who is he? Who does he actually think he is? 
Is he really who he said he is? Those questions confront us today as we're reading scripture. And how we answer those questions changes everything about us. So on the basis of that authority, all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus gives this command. And he says this, go, go. So go can be translated as you are going. The phrase implies intentional outward focused action. So this phrase implies intentional outward focused action. So as followers of Jesus, we're called to intentionally share Jesus, you know, in your group assignments, in the business class, on your dorm floor, um, in your campus job, in your families, you know, in your neighborhoods, in your cities, in your states, in our country, in countries around the world. We're called to go. It's not a command for others to, to come and hear. You come and hear from us, right? It's a command for us to go, for us to go and to share. Oftentimes, you hear this word like disciple making, and you think like it's a class you enroll in, and then you're a disciple after you pass this class, or you enroll in a program, and you participate in it, and then you get a certificate, and you've completed it, right? But that's not really it at all. Discipleship is, is personal. It's as we share life with other people that we impart the very life of Christ. So the first thing is, is go. Therefore, go. And then he says this, and make disciples of all nations. So disciple isn't really a word that we use that much today, right? So the definition of disciple is just a learner. Maybe a word we're more familiar with that means exactly the same thing is apprentice. Like you may have had people in your high school that decided, hey, I'm not going to pay all that money to go to school. I'm going to go to like the Votech is what we call it in Oklahoma. I don't know what it's called out here. And you learn to be an electrician and a plumber. And you know what, guys? They may make a lot more money than any of us. Um, but they're apprenticing, right? They're, they're actually going to school, but then they'll train under an electrician and under a plumber, and they'll learn these skills. So apprentice is one who is learning by practical experience under a skilled worker, a trade, an art, a calling. That's what an apprentice is. But this word, disciple, it's found 269 times in the New Testament. So it's a weighty word, right? Whereas the word Christian is only found three times. And it was first introduced to refer precisely to disciples in a situation where it was no longer possible to regard them as a sect of Judaism, right? They were their own separate entity as followers of Jesus. So Dallas Willard, I'm not sure if you've heard of him. He was a professor at USC in the philosophy school. He's kind of like the American C.S. Lewis. But he's this brilliant thinker, theologian. He wrote a lot of books. When you read his books, I don't know, I have to read them slowly and give great thought. But he was a Trojan, so I thought I'm going to quote him a couple times to a room full of Trojans. And this is what he said. The New Testament is a book about disciples, by disciples, and four disciples of Jesus Christ. So let me say that again. The New Testament is a book about disciples, by disciples, and for disciples of Jesus Christ. So how do we gain a clearer understanding of what it means to make disciples, right? Well, we look at the life of Jesus, and we apprentice Jesus. You've heard it said, and maybe you've even said it, I have said this more times than I am ashamed to admit, don't do as I do. Okay, I'm going to mess it up now. Do as I say, not as I do. Have you ever said that before? Do as I say, not as I do. Um, but that's not discipleship at all. That should not characterize our lives as we follow Jesus. No, disciples of Jesus reflect the change of Christ in our attitude, in our actions, and our words. So it's imperative that our lives really reflect this change of Jesus, not just in word, but in word 
and in deed, that in any circle we're in, Christian or non-Christian, that our lives reflect who Jesus is, what Eric was talking about um, in the first week. So we see that that's what it means to make disciples. And he goes on, he says, all authority on heaven and heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. And he says this, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So baptism is an outward expression of a radical internal change that takes place when we stop going our own way and choose to submit and to surrender and to follow the way of Jesus. So in baptism, we are publicly identifying that we are now a follower of Jesus. So this public act really just expresses the reality that is accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. There's a pastor in Ohio, Alistair Begg is his name. He has a great accent. And he said this, and I thought this was so powerful. He said, there is no such thing as a secret disciple. Either your discipleship will destroy your secrecy or your secrecy will destroy your discipleship. Let me say that one more time. There is no such thing as a secret disciple. Either your discipleship will destroy your secrecy or your secrecy will destroy your discipleship. We cannot be closet followers of Jesus. The change that he has enacted in us through the power of the Holy Spirit is something we want the world to know about and we want them to experience. So believers are baptized in the name of the Father on the basis of the finished work of Jesus, his son, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this public declaration just reflects this inner heart change and shows the world that we are part of a believing community of faith. And so the goal is, is not to ask people just to make a decision to follow Jesus, but to help people understand and to see the value and the importance of joining a group of people who are also headed in that direction, who are apprenticing Jesus and also making apprentices of Jesus, of professing publicly who we are and what our lives are gonna be about. So we see this progression. We are therefore to go and to make disciples of all nations. We are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we're to teach them, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded us. So I'm not a parent, but I'm around parents and I've seen how when children need help, right? So people who come to Christ are, are baby believers, right? And so they need nurturing, they need care, they need instruction, they need explanations of things. It's like, well, why can't I run out in the street? Well, because I love you and I want you to live for longer. But it's no fun to have to play in the yard. Like these boundaries are no fun. Well, you explain it, they can live a much richer, fuller life as they are alive to experience that, right? And so just as you're helping you explain things to children, things have to be explained to people who are first becoming followers of Jesus too, right? So Jesus' commands are not fulfilled if we simply evangelize and share the gospel. That's great, but that's just a first step. Learning to follow and obey is not just repeating a prayer, right? It's vital, it's a great first step, but it's imperative that we grow, that we mature, that we develop more and more into the image of Jesus, and that we help other people learn to know Jesus and to walk with him and to reproduce their lives and the lives of other people, right? So they're like, well, what are we supposed to teach if it's not like the basic instructions of how to stay alive? Like, how do you teach the things of Jesus? What are they? We teach them about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, his invitation to follow. Like, life is found in Jesus, and how do we apprentice him? So I'm thinking back as I was working on this message, you know, God brought to mind the women 
who were a part of my life when I was in college and how God used them to help me understand what it meant to be an apprentice of Jesus. So I have a photo up here. Courtney said one of the photos wasn't loading, so I'm not sure. You might just use your, use your imagination. Oh, maybe the whole thing didn't load, Leilani. Not Leilani's fault. Uh, we'll blame it on Google. If any of you work for Google, this was a Google slide issue. But anyway, so my freshman year, there I was a mess. We'll save those stories for another day, but... Um, I was a handful. Um, as you can imagine, for those of you who know me, uh, freshman Erin. So there was a girl named Brandy, and she was my freshman connection leader. And she was kind of just assigned to this dorm. And whatever girl was interested in Jesus, and even those who weren't, she was supposed to help them. And so I just kind of followed along in Brandy's footsteps, and we would, you know, there was a Burger King at the bottom of my dorm and a Baskin-Robbins, so random, right? And so we would just hang out there, and she would talk to me about Jesus, and she really helped me cultivate an understanding and habits to help me grow in my relationship with Jesus. And then sophomore Aaron was probably even a bit more of a mess because, you know, sophomore, as my dad liked to remind me, means wise fool. And so the, my picture would be the definition. <laughs> Next to that definition, it was like, you want to know what a sophomore is? Just look at the life of Aaron. So I, I was a wise fool. But there was a girl, her name was Kara, and she was a senior. And she was my life group leader and my discipleship team leader. And she was so busy. Like, she was intensely busy. And we knew that there were six of us. And she met with six of us every single week. And she told us that she commuted, which in Oklahoma, like, a commute is like 10 minutes or 15 minutes. But for us, it was like, whoa, 15 minutes. Um, why would you do that? But anyway, she, she told us one day that she was just compelled not to listen to music or anything else while she drove, but every day she prayed for us while she drove in the car. And I just still remember that all these years later, that kind of love. And then spring semester of my sophomore year, Kara sat me down in the student union, and she loved me enough to risk having a really hard conversation with me. And she kind of held a mirror, not literally didn't bring a mirror to our lunch, but she just painted a picture of where my life was headed with the choices that I was making. And it was a tearful, hard conversation. And I still remember so much about the day, and it's been a lot of years, but I will forever be grateful that she risked how I would respond to love me enough to paint a picture of what my life could be like, fully surrendered to Jesus, surrounded with people who were headed that same way. And it literally changed the trajectory of, me, of my life. I look back and I think, that one conversation wow, thank you, God, for her obedience. Because I'm sure it wasn't a fun conversation to have, right? She probably dreaded that. And then my junior and senior year, thankfully after that conversation with Kara, I felt like God was leading me to move to the athletic dorms at OU, which it, it had to be, it couldn't be athletic dorms because of NCAA rules. So they needed me to live there. I was the 51% that made it non-athletic, but we lived right across the street from the football stadium, so it didn't really matter. But anyway, so I just tried to start Bible studies in the athletic dorms, and there was a lady named Julie Gregor. She had four kids, and she homeschooled these children. She was so busy, and she just invited me into her life, and she helped me understand how to help these girls that I was trying to help in the dorms. And so God has used those three women still in my life today. I'm so grateful for their impact and the legacy. And I'm like, in heaven someday, hopefully you'll get to meet them. And you can you know, joke about how crazy Erin was when she was in college. But we all need people like that in our lives. We need people who are just a couple steps ahead of us, who are still apprenticing because we never outgrow our need to apprentice, right? But they're just a couple steps ahead because they've just been apprenticing a little longer than us. So Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, was a huge leader in the early church. He was writing to this church in Corinth, trying to help them understand, like, apprenticing Jesus, this is what it looks like. And he wrote this in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He said this, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. 
If you think about Paul's life, was Paul sinless? No, not at all. But was Paul apprenticing Jesus? Yes. Yes, he was. So there are people in this room who are broken and sinful, just like the Apostle Paul, but who would love to help you. I would love to help you learn what it means to apprentice Jesus if you're interested in doing that. You look more at Paul's life in his instruction, and he shows us a really clear example of what discipleship looks like. And he wrote to his apprentice, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2.2, he said this, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. If you think about that, like how different would this campus look if we began to follow the example of Jesus and the example of Paul and to invest our lives as an apprentice of Jesus, developing other apprentices of Jesus. So here's kind of an illustration I thought was really powerful. You see Paul and you see, these are just three men that he invested in. You see him investing in Timothy, you see him in Titus and Epaphras. And then you see these faithful men coming out from that and then more and more, the multiplication process. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, like what if we put our names on this list? Like instead of Paul, it said Aaron. And then there was Mia and Clarissa and Sam. And then there's faithful freshmen again and again and again. And these faithful freshmen and then are investing in other people. And it just branches and continues. And what a beautiful picture that would be day-to-day happening every day at USC, how that would change the culture of this campus. So think about that illustration or thinking about how you spend your life and the decisions you're making. And then Jesus closes out this section of this passage with his promised presence. And he says, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Because when you hear this passage is like such a daunting task. Like, how is that possible? That cannot be, right? It's overwhelming. We can't do this with like strategy meetings or flow charts or anything like that. We need the very presence of Jesus as he's promised. Only Jesus can empower such a great endeavor. From now until he returns, we can have complete confidence that we are never, ever alone. Just as he promised he would be with his disciples, that holds true for us disciples today because the end of the age has not come. We are still here, aren't we? And I love this, how, you know, this is the end of the gospel of Matthew, this promise of Jesus' presence. But if we rewind the tapes to the beginning, to Matthew 1, verses 22 to 23, it says this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. So bookended, the presence of Jesus. What a beautiful thing. So as we kind of transition, looking at why would Jesus give this method? Like, why? This seems hard. It seems messy. We know enough about humanity to know that this is not going to be an easy endeavor, right? And at first look, also, it kind of looks unimpressive, right? The focus is, is not on us at all. The focus is on him doing the work but yet we can't do it on our own. You know, and and no one's really writing a book about when you meet up with one-on-ones. There was no film crew that was videotaping me when I was talking to Clarissa about how to share the gospel this week. There wasn't like people like, oh, can we get that on tape, Aaron? Like the the angle and the sense. No, no one cares. There wasn't even anyone eavesdropping because they did not care, right? There's tremendous power in multiplication, but it's not flashy. And it's not going to draw the attention of a crowd, right? But this is the way of Jesus. The discipleship mandate that Jesus declares, it declares the worth of every single 
individual. Every person matters and every person has a role to play in this. So we're gonna look at some numbers tonight. I was not an applied math major, you will know that very quickly, but for you math majors, um, this should add up, right? Um, so if you can see this, use your imagination. Suppose that you are just a tremendous evangelist and that every day that you share the gospel, one person comes to Christ. Like that's pretty phenomenal results, right? And so at the end of the year, you have 365 brand new believers. Like that's cause for rejoicing. That's amazing. So this is the principle of addition, right? But suppose another person leads someone to Christ and they spend that year building into that one individual and they teach them how to grow in their faith, how to walk with God, how to mature in their faith and how to spiritually reproduce themselves in the lives of another person, right? So at the end of the year, you have two disciple makers, which compared to the 365, you're like, oh, I don't know how this is gonna work out. And then the next year continues on. Someone shares the gospel with one person every day. Someone comes to Christ. You have 730 people, right, by the end of that year. But the disciple maker, at the end of the second year, has invested themselves in two other individuals. So there's four at the end of the year, four. Like, most of you maybe come from families bigger than four, right? So it's like, well, that's pretty small. But if this process were to continue, you see, like, at the end of 10 years, there's how many people? Can you see this sign? 35 <laughs> 35,000, not 35,000, 3,560, yes, yes. End of 16 years, we've got over 5,000. But the disciple makers keep on investing in one person every year who does the same thing, and then that person goes, turns around and does the same thing again and again and again, and then look at where the numbers are. That is the power of multiplication, right? And the big difference, yes, is in the numbers, but it's also in the growth and the maturity of those who are becoming disciples and disciple makers, right? Because when you focus on disciple makers, you are focusing on helping someone grow and mature and reproduce themselves in the lives of other people. But you look at this, if just one person didn't reproduce their life and alive another person, the number is cut in half. Like that's really significant. So the reminder that we each have a role to play and our role is very significant. And we each get to be the link. And if we aren't the link, then the way Jesus intended for this to be doesn't happen, right? And we know that because that's the world that we live in. So why not a mass evangelism? Like the Olympics have been all over the world. Like what if we use these massive stadiums in Rio and in Korea and all over the place, London, Los Angeles in 2028, and we just filled these stadiums with people, right? And we hired really amazing speakers that could speak in the language of the people, and they told the gospel, and there was this massive response. Like, wouldn't that be amazing? Well, but we looked at the numbers, too. Oftentimes in those situations, the focus kind of becomes on the person who's doing the speaking rather than on the God who's doing the work. And also, there's thousands of people sitting there that are thinking, well, this guy's doing all the work. This woman's doing all the work. God has chosen them to play this role. I don't really have a role to play. I just am sitting here and absorbing all of this, right? And so what Jesus wants us to see is that each of us has a role in this disciple-making endeavor. But it takes one to make one, right? So you can't make a disciple if you aren't a disciple. So as we wrap things up, you know, the original Greek, this passage, the only direct command is make disciple. Make disciples is the command. So he, the Great Commission instructs us to make disciples while we are going throughout the world. The instructions to go and to baptize and to teach, those are indirect commands. 
participles in the original, for those of you English majors. So how are we to make disciples? By baptizing, by teaching them everything that Jesus commanded. So make disciples is this primary command of the Great Commission. Going, baptizing, teaching are the means by which we fulfill this command to make disciples. So I began tonight by talking about weighty words. How much weight do you and I give these words of Jesus? Think about that. Are you and I giving them the weight that they deserve? I would encourage you to spend some time with God tonight in the next couple of days asking him to help you just evaluate, am I really a disciple of Jesus or not? Like Just to own where you are, be honest with yourself. God already knows, it's not hidden from him. But if you do consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, then asking yourself, are you actively making disciples? But here's the thing, there is a great cost to discipleship. It is not easy. In fact, Jesus instructs us, count the cost. It's costly to follow him. He is upfront that following him will not be easy and it will not be comfortable. Not at all. It's costly. But if you look back at history, you kind of see the model of multiplication in the early church worked really well for the first 300 years, right? And then something changed. And what changed was Constantine. He decided that Christianity should be more of a cultural thing, right? And so those who had previously been followers of Jesus had paid a high price, and no longer did they need to pay such a high price to follow Jesus. So not paying a price diminishes impact, right? And if we live this out, we have an opportunity for impact, eternal impact. But just as when you say yes to something, you say no to something else, right? Similarly, there's a cost to apprenticing Jesus and developing apprentices of Jesus, but there is a cost to saying no to this command. So I want to end with another quote by the beloved Trojan, Dallas Willard, and he writes this, non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good, Hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances. Power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly the abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring in John 10.10. The cross-shaped yoke of Christ is, after all, an instrument of liberation and power to those who live in it with him and learn the meekness and loneliness of heart that brings rest to the soul. You know, Apprenticing Jesus is the invitation of a lifetime, but the choice is yours. No one can make that choice for you. And there's going to be a lot of things competing um, in your life for that role. But we as a staff and your life group leaders and freshman connection leaders, we are striving to live out this great commission as imperfectly as we are, right? So we would love to talk with you if you have questions about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus or apprentice of Jesus and how can I join in that great commission and develop other apprentices of Jesus. So I actually printed up this quote on little stickers that I thought might be good for you to put in those challenge journals that we're selling out front, or maybe in your own journal, or maybe in the front of your Bible. You do not have to take one. Do not feel obligated at all. You can just keep passing them down, and as I walk to the back, I can just pick up the remnants on the way back. But I just wanted to give you a tangible reminder of the cost, right? Because there's a cost either way, right? But which cost is going to define your life? 
which cost will define your life. Let me pray, and then we'll welcome back up Justin and the team. Father, thank you that your word is true. Thank you so much for these weighty words of Jesus and that they persevered through thousands and thousands of years that we can read them today and just be convicted and measure our life by the life of Jesus. And so I pray that your words tonight would ring loud and clear, not my words, and that you would cause us to really truthfully evaluate whether we are apprenticing you, Jesus, and developing other apprentices of you, and that we would align our lives with yours, that come what may, that when we decide, is it worth it, that we would say yes every single time. Would you remind us of the cost of following you, but also the greater cost of not following you? We're so grateful for your word and for the truth and life that it brings. Thank you that life is found only in you, Jesus. We're so grateful for life you came to bring to us. We love you and ask these things in your name. Amen. Mm-hmm.